It's good to be back with you after being away uh, for a few weeks and coming as we are to the end of Zechariah today, the week before Christmas. Uh, do keep your Bibles open and it'd be very helpful to have your Bibles open because, <coughs> pardon me, we'll be sort of casting our eye over uh, sections because of the, uh, the length of the passage here. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Please bow your heads. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for your life-giving word. And we pray now as we hear it and as we have heard it uh, that you would lift our eyes to Jesus and see him, the one who is all in all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't need to tell you that living as a disciple of Jesus has its challenges. Uh, in fact, no matter who you are, uh, follower of Jesus or not, uh, everyone faces challenges in this life. And those challenges and suffering in particular are why individuals and philosophers and communities have wrestled uh, with suffering to try and make sense of suffering for millennia. And suffering takes all sorts of forms, doesn't it? I don't need to tell you about suffering. Uh, there's the sort of suffering when our bodies don't work the way they should or the way we remember. Uh, and through our experience of pain and even death, uh, as well as the conflicts that we have with other people, including those even who are closest to us, and the harm they can do to us and we to them. Then there's our ability to do what we plan to do and our inability to guarantee what will happen or to stop what we don't intend from happening. But the challenge, and I must say the joy of trusting God and his word about trusting Jesus as his followers, is that we not only yearn for better, we know there is better. We've heard his promises. We've been shown uh, what being restored to God looks like, but we don't experience it fully yet. And so the challenge is, well, when my circumstances call into question God's reliability, will I give in to that narrative or will I continue to depend on him? It sort of breaks itself down into, into different questions like, can he be trusted? Is he able to follow through on the grand promises he makes? Uh, is he even willing? That's where the book of Zechariah uh, met God's people, the Jews, as they returned from the exile of judgment uh, two and a half thousand years ago, returned from experiencing his judgment, where after all they'd been through and were still to experience. And that's where it meets us again today, with all we have been through and will yet experience Zechariah is uh, very much a book, uh, God's word to shape who we are and how we live now as we look forward to the future. Seeing the majesty of what God has promised us, looking forward to it, rejoicing in it, as we live in this, uh, what I like to call in-between time, this now but not yet time, where we live in between receiving the promises of God, even experiencing some of the promises being kept by God, but still waiting for the final instalment. 
Uh, are you any good at waiting? A few smiles, shakes of the head around the room. I am uh, terrible at waiting. Uh, we heard that question from, what was his name? Dr Justin Credible, self-titled, I note. Uh, that, uh, uh, you know, if you're, if you're particularly the younger you are, the more you look forward to Christmas and a, and a week seems like a month away. Uh, the HSC students have just finished and, and I'm thinking back to my own experience. I, I'm terrible at waiting, particularly when I know it's for something good. I remember uh, the, the, uh, how I was looking forward to the holiday we'd planned after finishing school. Uh, when I asked Louise to marry me, and it has been pointed out to me that it took my own sweet time to get around to that. Uh, I was like, now we've made this decision, every day between getting engaged and our wedding day, every day felt like a week. I don't know if you've had an experience in that or some other area of your life, the list could go on, but when you think about it, this is the very definition of hope, isn't it? Hope which we talk about so much at this Christmas time of the year. Looking forward to something you'll receive but haven't received yet. Well, that's where, why uh, we are reading Zechariah. As the Lord reminds us of his promises and how good they are and how trustworthy he is to keep them. He's also going to show us how to respond by repentance, by turning back to him and by persevering in our dependence upon him. Well, uh, you'd be familiar by now, Zechariah has 14 chapters in total and today we've come to the last three. Uh, but before we return to them, do you remember how Zechariah uh, started out? The initial message from the prophet, from the Lord, and the tone that that set for the book. Uh, it's there in 1 verse 3. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. What we've seen unfold since that time is how that would play out. And in the first half of the book, it was in their day, in the day of the Jews at the time of Zechariah, how the Lord would bring this about, his return, through his servant Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor and through the people themselves. The second half of the book, 9 to 14, it's written at a time after those things and the temple had been rebuilt and the, the people were settled again, but Given the temple they'd rebuilt was such a mere shadow of what it had been before, and in fact their lives in the land were a shadow of what they'd expected to come, how were they to think and live when they'd been given, uh, expected uh, more from God? David kicked off this second half of the, of, uh, of the book in chapters 9 to 11 over the last two weeks. We're going to look at the final three chapters today. Of course, there's a lot in here, so we won't be able to drill down into every question uh, we'd like answered. But at the same time, uh, we have been preparing for these passages uh, as we've been reading through the rest of Zechariah. And so what I want to ask you at the outset 
uh, and having heard chapters 12 and 13 read out, uh, what did you notice? Just to put your uh, beating hearts at rest, I'm not actually going to ask you to call out your answers here. I know that that sort of, once I say that, everyone's concentration improves. Uh, But what did you notice uh, about how it's put together, Uh, about how uh, this narrative unfolds, about the notes, you know, like, like a singer hits those notes that Zechariah hits in this prophecy? Did you notice any patterns? Uh, any themes that you've heard before in this book? And how do they help you understand better what we're meant to make of all of this? Well, we have been keeping an eye on patterns uh, along the way in Zechariah, and uh, there are patterns in the way he's put the book together. And like we saw at the beginning of chapter 9, here again at the beginning of chapter 12 are the words, a prophecy. Uh, so like 9 to 11, these last three chapters are God's word to his people. Another message, that's what prophecy is, uh, in this case, a message about their future. The next thing to notice uh, when taking our bearings is what is said about the Lord. Now, I mention this because I find I'm always at risk of falling into the trap where familiarity breeds contempt. We know the Bible, you know, has the Lord as the key uh, featuring character in everything that takes place, but we can often skip, therefore skim over him, and particularly when he's mentioned or described briefly as he is here in verse 1. So let's just slow down for a moment and read that verse out. He is the Lord who stretches out the heavens who lays the foundations of the earth and who forms the human spirit within a person. And so in those words, we're reminded of the power and the goodness of God, aren't we? Of the powerful creator, of our creator. But when it comes to noticing things, Maybe the pattern you noticed most, uh, because it's here a bit like a chorus that's repeated again and again, and this time I I will risk it and we'll say, does anyone want to say the three words that keep coming up again and again that are repeated throughout chapters 12 and 13? On that day. I know you're all shy and want to let someone else go first. In chapters 12 to 13, they come up nine times. In chapter 14, another eight times. And and what what sort of effect do they have? How did they affect you as you were hearing it read? Uh, I, I take it they point us to a time, certainly in the future from them then, a day which will be so significant a glorious day, a day of salvation, even though it's a day that includes judgment, which will be so extraordinary that you can't just describe it in in one breath. And so the Lord, through Zechariah, describes one aspect of it, then he takes a breath and describes another, and then he does it again and another, and does it again and another. Like, Like, 
as if he was setting up dozens of spotlights, like the spotlights we've got up here, looking at a sculpture or on a museum piece so that you can see it in all its majesty. Or for the sporting fans you, like having a camera at every significant angle in the cricket so that as you watch, you feel yourself immersed in the action. Uh, in the same way, each on that day, it builds up the picture on top of the last, doesn't it? And it immerses us in the greatness and the goodness of this great day. So then, what is the picture this prophecy paints? What is the message from God it brings? It's a message that the Lord has everything under control. It's a message that his people will experience the extraordinary good things he's promised, good beyond even our imagination. And it's a message too that this glory will come only after passing through suffering. Maybe that last piece of the message surprises you. Uh, it doesn't seem to fit at first pass, does it? Uh, if you're trying to promote something as good news. And yet maybe it's the most important part of this message. After all, suffering is the part that so often calls the other parts into question. And in fact, just as a quick aside, this is one of the things I love about God's word uh, that keeps deepening my conviction that it has been spoken by God. Uh, and that's the, the way the Bible doesn't brush uh, difficult things under the carpet, doesn't try to paper over them, and suffering first among them, perhaps the one that matters to us most. But to hear God's word itself, let's remind ourselves of what God promises about this day. Uh, let's have a look at 12 verse 2. Uh, the Lord says, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be, be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem being besieged, uh, that unfortunately for the Jews of Zechariah's day was an experience that was all too familiar. But on this day, rather than God's people being judged in this siege, they're actually going to be a cup of God's judgment upon his enemies, like a cup of poison which will bring their death and destruction. And instead of God's people being judged, they'll be secure, immovable, a rock. They'll be saved from their enemies because they have the Lord's watchful eye upon them. It will be a day when those who have stood against the Lord and his people will receive the Lord's just judgment upon them. And those who have depended on him, his salvation. Now look at verse 10. He says, And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn him as one who mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. 
Does it have an echo that jogs your memory, that resonates with something else you've heard? We'll come back to that in a minute. But on this day, the day of the Lord, this good news day, he will pour out his spirit of grace uh, and of supplication to be able to pray and ask God for things. Promised by the prophets in the days before the exile, the transformation that every person needs. And they would recognise what they had become and what they had done. And his people would mourn. Now, each of these pictures of the future, one of the things that's striking about them is the way in which they recall Judah's past. I won't try and uh, list all the links uh, today, but there are very clear links between what is promised would come after them then and what they had already experienced as a nation or heard through the prophets before they went into exile. You can search them through if you like uh, using a cross-reference Bible uh, or looking at Michael Stead's commentary we've been sort of waving about uh, or indeed recalling what you've read in your own Bible reading before this point. The point is the Lord is going to make it possible uh, and will work in all those who are his. He even brings about our very turnaround from facing away from him to facing toward and depending on him. But that same sin, the sin which led them into exile, which we all need a heart transplant for to remedy, that sin at this point, is it still needs to be dealt with. Which brings us to 13 verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. It's a marvellous picture, isn't it? Of cleansing waters, the Lord himself providing the way for people to be cleansed from sin and the impurity that stands between us and is so offensive to our holy God. And Zechariah goes on to say immediately after that, What will come with that uh, will be uh, the idols, the false gods, uh, the things that we replace the true God with. uh, In the land, they will be taken away. And the prophets, uh, and I found this confusing when I first read it, I actually think he means the false prophets, those who claimed to speak for God but did quite the opposite. They're sort of connected with the impurity there in that passage. Their time will come too. Uh, they want to avoid this judgment of God. Uh, they'll, you know, they'll make up things to pretend that they're not prophets, and and they say, "Oh, these wounds that I've got probably from their sort of uh, uh, idolatrous prophecy, uh, uh, they were they were made by a friend." And you think, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Uh, so the true God and His true word. On this day, they will be all that remains. It's described in verses 7 to 9 of chapter 13 as the day of the sword. Now, I haven't (coughs) mentioned it specifically before now, but I expect you've noticed it. You've noticed what's unfolding here. That the shepherd, the Lord's Messiah or king, pictured here in verse 7, He is the one 
in 12 verse 10 that they had pierced. He is the one that they are mourning over, now recognising what they had done to their king. And we, do we recognise now as we live lives this side of the cross as Zechariah is pointing us to him as well? As we too mourn that we were caught up in this incredible travesty. Do you remember the gospel writers when they pointed to Jesus' suffering and to the apparent contradiction of, you know, the Lord Almighty, uh, God himself, uh, when you would expect if he was almighty that he should rule over all and instead he was being ruled over, at least in appearances, suffering for all. As you can read in Mark and Matthew, uh, Matthew 26, verse 31, on the eve of the cross, just before the first disciples abandoned him, recalls Zechariah 13, verse 7. Jesus says it to Peter when Peter says, I won't deny you, but Jesus says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Or in John 19, when John is recalling Jesus' lifeless body uh, still upon the cross, he recalls 12 verse 10. That's where you've heard it before. The onlookers looking upon the one whom they had pierced. As David mentioned, uh, David, our David, not King David, David uh, mentioned back in chapter 9 with the promise of God's king coming to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey and how Jesus did just that. The gospel writers, every one of them actually draw attention to that. They're not just saying, look here uh, and and what did he fulfil that one verse? Uh, He just fulfilled that one verse over here or that one over there. Uh, They're saying, look at the promises that surround that and go hand in hand with that. He's fulfilling them. Because the day of the Lord comes with the coming of Jesus. Our celebration of Christmas, you know, only a week away, is a celebration of the first Christmas of God humbling himself and coming in the Lord Jesus, entering our world of suffering, entering into our suffering. But not only that, willingly being humiliated to the point of death, his own death upon the cross. And where he suffered, indeed suffering lies in the path of even God himself. And so we as his disciples are led to expect suffering at least for a time too. Not the same as him, but when we trust him, because we are joined with him. Our lives with his, our life from his new life. And so scattering, suffering and refining, like precious metal is refined, uh, that is part of God's great plan of his good news and wonderfully 
he will say of us, as he does in the last half of 13 verse 9, they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, why don't you say it with me? The Lord is our God. Now, as you read this passage, and even in the way I've spoken about it just now, you may have started to wonder, hey, well, what happens when? You know, we're talking about them then, we're talking about us today, and there are two perspectives on the timing of this last day here. Two different places from which they are viewed. Uh, there's the first from Zechariah, for Zechariah and those with him in his day, looking into their future. Then there's the second, of course, there's ours looking from where we stand on the other side of the cross from Jesus. And what we realise now that they couldn't see clearly then is that this last day, while it's the second to last chapter of all God's great plans, it's not simply a 24-hour day, but turns out to be the last days. Uh, maybe think of uh, this whole perspective thing this way. You know, if you head outside, head outside, morning tea afterwards, uh, it's like looking from there up to the mountains. Uh, you know, our mountains, uh, you can see the escarpment, uh, and it just looks like one mountain going, you know, away to the north and down to the south. That's our perspective uh, from here. Uh, but once you get up, up onto the mountains, and many of you live there and can see this every day, and most of us have, you realise it's not one mountain, but many that together make up the mountains. Uh, in Zechariah's day, they pretty much expected to see chapters 12 to 14 happen at once. Uh, what we've seen as God's plans unfolded is and even as we've read today, is that the coming of Jesus means the last days have already begun, but, not, but everything that was promised has yet uh, not been done. And so you and I, we live in the last days. Uh, they're not something off in the future. That the times of God's promises in Jesus fulfilled now, but with the final chapter of his return and we to be with him still to come. And so do you see what we're meant to see here? Do you see what God's doing here, even as he's written uh, these chapters, this word to us today? He's drawing by our sides. And he's speaking comforting words, encouraging words into our ear. Not mere words either, but words that are guaranteed with the Lord Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And do you know what he's saying? He's saying, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart in the face of your suffering it may be uncomfortable, unpleasant, almost unbearable. But the Lord is saying, I have given you good things and I have given you what you need to persevere.
He's given us his grace, 12 verse 10. He's given us his spirit so we can ask him for what we need. We have the gift of having our shame taken away for sin, the very privilege to be called his people and have eternal life in him. He gave the Jews of Zechariah's day this confidence as they lived in their era of now but not yet, saved and waiting for the final instalment. And he's given us this reminder of what we hope for, knowing the Lord Jesus saved and yet waiting for the final instalment, the hope of what is yet unseen. May we embrace it. May we live for it and live for him. We haven't had a chance to look much at chapter 14 and we we won't uh, have much time to do that, but let me encourage you to read it for yourself later today. Uh, And I hope the time we've spent together and what we've heard from chapters 12 and 13 really does give you the tools so that you can rejoice in it as much as we can in what we have already read just now. But before we uh, uh, leave Zechariah, chapter 14, it picks up on this same chorus of on that day. It shines more light on what to expect, both the judgment of God and a time of suffering and the restoration of his people. So let me just read these words from verse 8. On that day, living water will flow out from Jerusalem half of it east to the Dead Sea and half of it west to the Mediterranean Sea in summer and in winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day there will be one Lord and his name, the only name. Does that remind you of a picture that's painted elsewhere in the Bible? Here, if you read on, Chapter 14 ends with a day of transformation, with the nations who have been at war with God turning to worship and Jerusalem from impurity to being to overflowing with holiness. It's the same picture we're given at the end of Revelation. In the last book of the Bible, with its promises of the new heaven and the new earth and the heavenly Jerusalem and God himself there and we too, his people. And so how should we respond? Well, it's in the same way as the people of Zechariah's day who lived 500 years before Jesus, who lived 2,500 years before us recognising the promises God makes. He keeps. And what a privilege we have that they didn't have, that we live after the coming of God's good shepherd, that we live in the confidence that he has already uh, been pierced, so we need not. But as they were reminded to live a life of repentance, returning to God in the first place, returning again and again in the face of failures or guilt, uh, as they await the day and live in his forgiveness to be remade, so must we. Persevere in him, friends. 
persevere. Persevere in the face of suffering, in the face of your body's decay, in the face of your own failures, in the face of conflict, and in the face of shame. Because he who is for us and will restore us is greater than any enemy who stands against us. As we come now to the end of Zechariah and look forward to Christmas in the week to come, this is why we sing of hope and rejoice in it. For God has provided his word to shape us in the midst of it. How about I lead us in prayer? Dear Father in heaven, we thank you that you know our needs and you've given us this wonderful word from Zechariah, showing us how you have acted in the past so that we may be confident about how you are acting now and will treat us in the future. Give us that spirit of grace that mourns over sin and over the suffering of Jesus in our place for sin. Give us that spirit of prayer that lifts our needs before you and in dependence upon you. And lead us, we pray, to that hope which we have heard and been reminded of again today with rejoicing. We pray in Jesus' name.